Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. You must be absolutely exhausted from your long, uh, long haul flight home from Finland last night or two days ago. So uh, I'm very honoured that the first thing you'd like to do was sit down with me on my podcast, Sarah. So thank you and welcome to uh, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. Now, if I keep falling asleep, just you know, just keep uh, keep waking me up. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I will sound the podcast alarm bells, and we will uh, we'll Excellent. get you get you up and rambling again with me. Um, you've uh, you must be quite exhausted, not only from that uh, trip back from Finland, but also from you know all the work that you've been doing getting your film innuendo over the line it sounds it seems as though it's been uh, quite an intense period of your life yeah there's there's been a lot of work in the last couple of years but you know i say i'm a work maniac so uh, it suits me <laughs> <laughs> and you know i i just mentioned that you'd you'd come back from finland that's where you're originally from grew up in uh, in helsinki what what was it like? Uh, I mean, you you may not have kind of a comparison, but to kind of grow up in uh, as as a creative person with a kind of burning creative passion to grow up in uh, in a country like Finland. It was very cold. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it it was interesting because I, uh, I I wasn't born into what you'd call an art family, and and it seems like in Finland, as socialist a country as it is, there is a real kind of monarch thinking when it comes to arts and, and who can make it in the arts. And unless you're born in a certain family, it sort of seems very unachievable to you. And I wasn't born into one of those families with a with an important surname. So it always seemed like it was totally out of reach and this is not something that people talk about that much because you know it's not a great look for a socialist country but it is yeah it's it's very um it's it's definitely there and uh, and I was lucky enough with my merits to go into like performing arts college um, A-level school if you like and particularly there it was obvious that the teachers were treating the kids with better surnames better than they were me um it was it was completely different attitude towards the people that came from certain families uh so yeah that was interesting i guess i was always up against not being from an important arts family uh but you know it's okay i still am doing what i love to be doing and uh yeah i'm still here despite my surname (laughs) (laughs) It's another week. It's another ramble. It's coming up next with Alistair Marks. That's me. That's my voice. That's Alistair Marks' voice. And this week, I bring you an independent filmmaker who's just finished making her debut feature film, Innuendo. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, direct from Finland to Australia, over Skype to London, Sarah Lamberg. And if you are interested in hearing more, finding out more, reading more, about her film Innuendo the movie, you can do so on Facebook or at www.innuendomovie.com and another www that you might want to go to is comingupnext.com.au where you can find all the links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean to this podcast to Coming Up Next and you can also, if you're feeling very, very saucy... You could write and uh, write a review and leave a rating, and I will continue bringing you more rambles, more podcast episodes, like my episode this week. Coming up next, episode seventy-four with Sarah Lamberg. What did your? Uh, what were your parents? What do they do? So, um, Mum was an amateur actor, so she did have the passion, but never sort of managed to make a profession out of it perhaps because she also didn't come from a certain surname family um but she her her profession was a kindergarten 
um, manager and my dad worked in metal. Um, yeah. So quite, quite sort of normal professions for, for Finland. Yeah. Mm. And was when you kind of, uh, moving through high school and discovering that you have this, uh, this passion for performance and for creativity, were your parents quite nurturing of that or were they a bit more pragmatic and they tried to kind of make you see it as a hobby, not a career? What was that sort of experience like? Yeah, like I said, my mum sort of had that understanding of why I wanted to do it um, because she was always creative herself. She liked singing and, and acting and those kind of things. But yes, there were more hobbies for her. Perhaps at some point she would have wanted to make a career out of it, but had come to realize quite early on that it just wasn't possible. So uh, I'm not sure if she would have been someone who would have really supported me in that. She unfortunately got very ill when I was a teenager, so I sort of lost her in that battle supporting me. But none of my the, none of my rest of my family would have been supportive at all. In fact, I think my sister's opinion was that my my um, reason for being a human being was to make cousins for her children <laughs> and she <laughs> right. made that very clear very early on and uh, yeah I wasn't buying into it so yeah sorry sister <laughs> <laughs> is that quite a traditional uh Finnish way of or Finnish mentality is that something that you felt like you were sort of up against generally or is that more just kind of specific to your sister um I certainly hear it from other women in the kind of the preeding age as well I think my cousin um, was in a very similar situation of not really wanting kids but her family pressuring her into it so yeah perhaps it is a Finnish thing Um, that's based on two families now so that's not a huge extensive study or anything but uh, (laughs) yeah I, I think for women in their 20s to 30s anywhere in the world it's always something that you will be up against some people expecting you to create more children into this world. Mm. Mm. And so, do you remember the first time that you did perform or that you created a show or something? I know you're quite a, a multifaceted um, artist. Uh, do you remember the first time that you kind of that you did something that made you feel like that was something that you wanted to continue doing for the rest of your life? Yeah, for sure. I think I quite early on realized that my uh, the types of performances that I created were a little bit left of center, and there was a particular one. I think I must have been nine or ten. I remember. I think I was I was nine. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was very young age and. And I played a prostitute <laughs> in a school play that I directed. When you were nine. <laughs> and there were a few parents that were a little bit shocked. And that's when I realized, you know what? I can do something that has an effect on people. It doesn't always have to be me playing a prostitute. <laughs> but at least I can do something with my life that has an effect that can create an emotional impact in people. So, yeah, I think that that would have been one of the moments when that I can truly remember that would have had that effect on me. Um, do you remember what it, what it was like while you were at school, maybe doing these plays, when you started to realize that if you didn't have a kind of special surname, um, to, to kind of use your words, that it was going to be very difficult for you to make a career or a life out of this, or, did, or, or you weren't getting the same sort of favoritism? Yeah, I think it was just pretty obvious from quite early on. Um, I never had any kind of a false idea that it would be easy or that any of it would be. Um, you know, I just didn't realize it would even be achievable for me. And and to some time, I I did follow a different path of going into journalism because that just seemed like that was still a creative job but at least it was a job that would pay the bills. Mm. So, yeah, I I did some uh, work for radio and television and and printed media as well. Uh, But it just always came back to me that it wasn't 
fulfilling what I wanted to do. It was still always too structured and there was no real creativity in terms of being able to uh, create the world. As a journalist, you just report the world and you, you, you try and be objective to everything. But what I love about love about art is that how subjective it is um and and that subjectivity i guess was always lacking when i was doing journalism and yeah that's why i always kept coming back to to making art and i think doing some of the radio stories that i did actually i was being too arty farty and (laughs) and it wasn't always appreciated (laughs) right (laughs) i know that feeling so Mm. At what point did you kind of uh, make the decision, first of all, to go into journalism, but then when did you make the decision, more importantly, to kind of put that behind you and try and uh, make a make a fist of a creative life? Yeah, so I had a, let's say, about five years from uh, uh, from my teens to sort of early 20s that I that I tried to do the journalism thing and at the end it just wasn't working. So I think I must have been about 23 when I then decided to go back to pushing uh, art full time. And yeah, I, I had to be creative about it because also since I didn't come from an important art family, I couldn't <laughs> get into studying arts. I only could get into studying journalism. But then I managed to... Um, um, be a little bit creative and I got myself into an exchange program in England and that was more of an art school than a journalism school so I went there as a journalism student and I I kind of after the first year of the exchange year having been doing this theater course for this year I asked them oh actually I quite like it here could I could I graduate from here this was called Dartington College of Arts very very left of center art college in England and they said yeah you're most welcome to stay on and to graduate from here so then I said goodbye to my journalism studies in Finland and stayed in England graduated from Dartington um, with my bachelor degree in theatre so yeah it was kind of kind of a win there Um, I beat the system that wanted me to become a journalist (laughs) and uh, went on to doing arts instead you certainly seem like someone who uh, has a very tenacious streak and someone who uh, who goes for what they want, um, even in the face of adversity. And what? So, how long were you in uh, in England for? And um, and what kind of then drew you to Australia? So I stayed in England for two years studying at. The- Dartington before I graduated and uh, and I stayed in the country for another couple of years um, in that time I would do a few short films um, I was an actor in a pantomime tour believe it or not <laughs> that was fun um, and yeah just just did a bit of film and theatre here and there um, but really um, was feeling that I wasn't progressing fast enough or I wasn't getting enough roles so you know it just didn't feel like like I still was getting enough out of being an artist and that's why I decided to move on um Australia it was it was more of a trial to start with I was just going to be here for a year on one of those working holiday visas that you can get really easily but actually within that year things started happening for me here uh, well, I made them happen. Let's be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was easier to make things happen here, I think, than it was in England. So so I decided to pursue that. Um, stayed for another year that you can on your working holiday visa. After that, it becomes a nightmare when you're an artist. No one wants more artists in their country. <laughs> so it was a very, very difficult um, road getting to the permanent residency. But I did. And um, yeah, now I've been here for nearly seven years. That's amazing. Well, you 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 said that uh, that you felt like it was easier to kind of make stuff happen in Australia than you felt like it was in England, and I presume even easier than uh, you probably felt like it was in Finland uh, without the special surname. 
Yes. <laughs> what was it? Uh, what What is it about Australia? What was it in the in those kind of moments that made you feel like it was easier? Because uh, my my experience certainly uh, was that I found it to be quite challenging. But perhaps that was, you know, perhaps it takes being a fish out of water to really see what the opportunities are that are available to you. Yeah, you might be right there. And, and I'm not sure if there's one particular place in the world where it's easier or, you know, it's difficult to be an artist anywhere, I think. Uh, and most of us are up to, you know, up against massive challenges wherever we are. But I guess that being fish out of water and just throwing yourself into new challenges and not having any expectation to start with might be a really good thing to start with to start networking and and I just decided you know I'll just go out there I'll do everything I can um, without expectation I didn't know who was important I didn't know who was not important I just threw myself at every opportunity I could get um, and that's basically how I created my first networks here and uh, that's from where it all started and then just started building from there um, not to say that you can't do that wherever you are, but at least you've got some kind of fresher um, eye, I think, to if, if you do um, make that journey to a new place where you haven't been before and where no one knows you. That's also, you can really use that. You can use that as your advantage. I certainly felt that at times I was a little bit exotic. I was interesting because I wasn't from here. Uh, people kept asking, why are you in Australia? I didn't really have a good enough answer for them most of the time. I just said, I just wanted to try it. And people are amazed at that. I guess it's that sense of adventure that comes with being an artist that actually fascinates people. And the fact that you can, if you're lucky enough to be able to just travel to the other side of the world, to just try it, just to... Because most people, they would have their nine to five, they would have their kids and maybe be able to travel for a couple of weeks a year. But here I am just completely changing my life from one day to another on the other side of the world. And that, that seems to fascinate people. And as an artist, if we can do something that interests and fascinates other people, that's half the job done. Mm, totally. And maybe that's why, uh, yeah, Australia seemed to work for me. <laughs> You and I met uh, working on a an uh, interactive experience called IRL Shooter. Um, I guess that must have been shortly after you'd arrived, but I was definitely kind of taken by how uh, sort of willing you were to promote yourself and promote your own work and to kind of really put yourself out there, which I suppose is what you're saying. You kind of prepared for any opportunity at any moment that may come your way. And I think that's really important and probably quite undervalued in in Australia, maybe in other parts of the world as well. Um, But, you know, the tall poppy thing certainly doesn't lend itself to shining too brightly off your own kind of merits. Um, I think there's there's certainly a mentality of uh, wanting to suppress that and, and, you know, don't get too big or don't don't uh, don't shine too bright, which I think, you know, needs to be needs to be uh, taken taken out of the, the spectrum because, you know, if, if we're not self-promoting, and I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but if we're not self-promoting as artists, you know, who, who's going to believe in us? We need to, we need to be our number one kind of cheerleaders, I think, uh, certainly to begin with. Um, and I think yeah, that... Yeah, no one you, else is going to do it for you, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm, um, I think you, I think you do an amazing job of doing that, certainly... Having, uh, as I said, you know, observed what you've been doing from afar over the last few years, and particularly with uh, with this feature film that you've been working on for a while, um, it's it's incredible to see uh, how how you can create something out of nothing. Which is, I suppose, what we do as creatives. We we have ideas that kind of manifest into reality, and then how much you've kind of put into promoting it. And creating awareness around every every win that you have uh, as a creative, because I don't think a lot of people do that, and I think that more people, sh- I think people don't do it because they're afraid of being judged, and I think more people should take a leaf out of that book and should be willing to self promote in that way, because I think it's important. Yeah, well, I've just seen so many. I think 
first of all, it's very important that you've got something to promote first. I've been ever go out there doing the whole promotional thing before you've done some actual work. So I think that's the number yeah. one step. Just create your, your work base first. Have something then, good first. But then I have seen too many people make incredible films that never get seen anywhere because they don't even send them to festivals. They don't do any promoting. They don't even show them to their peers, let alone any audience members. And that to me is such a shame. And, and not just for themselves, it's also a shame for everyone else involved in those films because most people can't make films by themselves there will still be crew members actors involved and i think not i'm I'm not just promoting myself i'm just so grateful for everyone that has worked with me that i feel like i you know i owe it to them to promote the shit out of it so that people will see it that's how i see it if i didn't do my very best to get the work out there then why would anyone work with me? There would be no point for them. <laughs> that's how I see it, and that, that's why I'm doing the promoting thing. It's not like I particularly enjoy selling myself. That's what it is. It's selling yourself. It's selling your own work, and I don't think that comes naturally, certainly not to a Finn, probably not to an Australian, <laughs> but you just got to do it. It's uncomfortable, but you have to do it, and, you know, that's what, that's what then gives you the opportunity to do more work because now people know about you and they know that your work gets out there it's not that you just make something and no one is ever gonna see it no if you work with this people with this this person this film is gonna get seen and you know there's value in that so yeah that's definitely why i do it to allow me to do more work if that makes sense yeah totally and it's uh, i think it's a great philosophy to have do you consider yourself now to be a, a filmmaker or an actor or both? And was that kind of the original idea or was the original idea to sort of just be one? Um, I think I said early on, I, I didn't really think it was possible for me to be a filmmaker. Like it, when I was a child growing up, it seemed like that was an unachievable dream. I saw some films and I thought they were amazing that was never anything that I would have considered as a realistic thing for me to be doing. Um, acting seemed really, really exciting and, and a little bit more achievable. Doing it professionally didn't seem achievable at all. Um, but I guess I've just always been mental that way. I didn't really care about what was achievable. I just kept doing it. Um, and now I'm here having made my first feature film. Um whether I just want to be an actor from now on, whether I just want to be a director or a producer or a writer from now on, for me, that's irrelevant. I just want to be a storyteller and whether that's me acting, whether that's me writing, whether that's me directing or doing all of those things at the same time, I don't really care, to be honest. Um, I do enjoy all of those jobs. I enjoy some of them more than I do others. Um, for example, producing for me, that's, that's hard work. That's not something I would choose to do full time. I'm very, very happy to produce my own films because it means that I get the full creative control of them. Um, I probably wouldn't produce stuff for anyone else. I just, <laughs> I wouldn't care enough <laughs> to be able to do that. I do now direct films for other people. Um, I haven't written anything for anyone else. Again, that's something I do enjoy, but mainly just my own kind of stories so yeah I'm, I'm very very happy to be an actor in someone's film I'm even happy to come and direct someone's film uh, the producing and the writing I believe will always at this stage it feels like that that will always be my work what I've created but who knows that might change um, I think you know my, my career has changed step by step like I said, I certainly didn't see myself as a movie producer a few years ago, but hey, here I am. Um, so, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Mm. And it's important to have that kind of flexibility to kind of go where the river takes you so that you're not kind of swimming against the stream, but you're always kind of flowing with it, I think. And then more opportunities will come your way. Yeah, definitely. And it's still all... You know, in film, it's it's still a very, very small area of, of what a human could be doing. <laughs> you know, it's 
I'm not doing science, I'm not doing engineering, I'm not being a nurse. It's all still around the same artistic pursuit. I just see it as, as different sections of the same thing. And I see filmmaking as something very holistic anyway. And even as an actor, it's so important to understand other people's jobs on set to be able to do a better job. Uh, certainly as a director and a producer, you have to understand everyone's jobs probably better than they do themselves or at least you have to understand that you have to get the best person for that job for it to be get done better than you could have done it um so yeah you just need this kind of very very holistic understanding of what it is that you want to create and how to make that happen Mm. how important is it for you to kind of be really specific in the details of the story and the themes that you want to explore uh, from from the outset? There's not really a simple answer to that because I think every story is different and some stories allow for much more flexibility than others. And I'm somewhere, someone given a chance, I would love to do quite a bit of improvised work even on set. You don't always get a chance to do it because of time restrictions or various other restrictions. But if I had my choice, I would do the scene as it's written first, but then also do an extra shot of completely improvised because I know actors are terrific in their jobs and they can a lot of the time provide something so much better than what I've written on the page. And sometimes just some magic can come out of that. So, yeah, I totally, totally... um, respect and cherish improvised work wherever I can Um, and I think again if you have that holistic understanding of your story then you can be free in that way and I'm more and more I do this work I kind of understand that having one person um, as as the main um, leader of the project taking responsibility and holding that artistic vision is so important and it's not very trendy these days. It's very trendy these days to collaborate and, and have several directors, have several producers. But I don't know. I think you kind of lose something of of the the creativity and of, of the artistic freedom if you don't have one person taking responsibility. Because when you have one person taking responsibility, you can allow everyone else to play around that. And you can come up with so much better stories films pieces of theater when you do have that and mainly it is about that responsibility when one person takes the responsibility that you know if this all falls down if this is going to be shit you can all blame me (laughs) i think that's a beautiful thing and that's the one reason why you know i love doing uh being a writer director producer and and having that creative control because it just allows for so much freedom for everyone else in the project Mm. And also, it allows you to be a control freak, which I know very well. Yes, this is true. So, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, when was the first, uh, sh- when did you make your first short film? Because you've got quite a prolific body of uh, short films leading up to your first feature film. I did do video art pieces. I don't know if I would call them short films, but I did do them back in Dartington. They were very, so Dartington College of Arts in England, they were very uh, experimental, as was the whole college. That that was very much encouraged and I was very much going with the flow as you like and, and doing that exactly. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't really call them, I don't know what I call them. They were, they were pieces of art and no one ever needs to see them <laughs> <laughs> anymore, let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, my first um, short films, as I would call them, would have been in Australia. So there was a short film called Waiting Forever that I did, um, was it 2012, probably? Um, yeah, and then a few other short films before my first feature, Innuendo. Yeah, that's just been completed a few months ago. And what gave you the kind of... Uh... I suppose uh, courage, I guess, would be the word I'm looking for. Um, or what kind of madness? <laughs> well, what what kind of lit the flame that that propelled you to actually go forward with 
making a feature film because I think you know similarly to what we were you were talking about earlier with moving overseas moving country setting up a life having an adventure lots of people talk about uh you know making a feature film and how they're going to do it myself included but very few people actually have the follow through or the guile to actually do it or or even the resources to make it happen so i suppose what was the kind of uh what was it for you that actually gave you that thrust to actually put one foot in front of the other and start the process again not a simple answer not one thing <laughs> it's just always a lot of little things and you just keep working and working and working and it's just at the end of the day you just got to be prepared to Find a lot of people that are willing to work with you, but also always to uh, to be the one person that does most of the work. You've got to be the person that's always prepared to do everyone else's jobs if, if anyone was not to show up on the day, if anything failed on the day. You've got to be able to do it. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of willingness, I think, to do anything it takes, whatever the fuck it takes. Sorry, can I swear on your podcast? You can swear as much as you fucking want. I've already want. done it, so it's too late. <laughs> we go. you can edit it if you like. you got to do whatever the fuck it takes to get that film made. Um, and step by step, you've got your film, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very, very difficult at times. It's going to be incruciatingly difficult at times. But, you know, it's after that you've got a film, and... I can't encourage anyone who's in the filmmaking and thinking about making that film to just start making it. It's it's just about starting. And what I found out in this process is that when you do take that first step and when you do start taking your work seriously, people will follow because people want to make films. Um, I was lucky enough to have 200 people helping me with making it. And also it, by, no, by no means is it the one person project although I wore the main hats but there's another 10 people I could call anytime and they'd come and help me and there's another yeah 190 people that helped me along the way with smaller jobs and it's just amazing when you see that once you do start something and once you do start something seriously people will follow and there were situations where I walked into the room expecting to start rehearsing actors and they were already there they were already doing it without me having done anything and it was just so beautiful coming into that situation knowing that I had done something to plant that seed but they were actually doing it Um, and it, it became this bigger organism that wasn't about me anymore it was more about all of the other people working with me and and them also being really passionate about it but I guess it was my driving passion that would help them to start that journey so yeah just go out out there and start it um, in my case what gave me the confidence of doing this particular screenplay was I had sent a few different screenplays that I've written into various competitions just to uh, get feedback because most, most competitions will give you a written feedback and it's really useful for your next draft um, and with this particular screenplay that I've written for Inlando, I uh, won a bronze award at the Beverly Hills Screenplay Contest. That's amazing. I didn't get the long list of notes, but I got the award, so that kind of gave me the indication that, okay, this is <laughs> this is something that's worth pursuing, and uh, that's how I decided to make this particular one. And I had a bit of a plan of potentially finding funding and bigger producers for it, but I also gave myself a limit, like a time deadline, I gave myself a year of shopping it around to bigger uh, major producers here in Melbourne and a little bit in Finland as well because there was a Finnish um, kind of a backstory for my main character. So I thought, you know, it could be a um, co-production, it could be a Finnish production company taking it on, it could be an Australian production company taking it on. I was open to those those choices. Um, but I did give myself a year and I decided if after a year nothing has happened, nothing concrete has happened, then I'm just going to go out out there and do it myself. And that's exactly what happened. During the year, I had some very important meetings, some very interesting producers that were sort of half interested, 
But I just realised it was going to be years before anything was going to happen. Everything moves so very slowly in film and and you still don't know if it's ever going to happen. It could have just become a, a project for one of these producers that had 30 other projects on their slate and, and it might not, not ever have happened. Um, so the only way for me to make sure it happened was to make it myself. So that's what I ended up doing. It's <laughs> mm. very inspiring. Uh What's the what's the story behind innuendo? What I suppose what's the premise and um, because I know it's it's a as you said it's it's sort of based in Finland and Australia, so I'm sure there's you know parts of your own life that are kind of taken from it. What was the what was the inspiration for for it? Well, I bloody hope not. <laughs> <laughs> the main character is the killer, after all. Yeah. No, uh, of course, there's, I think you can't really escape yourself when you write anything. Of course, there's some sides of myself that would have gone into the main character and, and even some events from real life, although most of it is fiction. Um, so I have a main character that was an identical twin, grew up in Finland in a, a religiously oppressive environment and in the shadow of her angelic twin sister. So she moves to Australia um, to look for her own identity. She's always really curious about anything to do with nudity and sexuality because those things were very much a no-no when she was growing up. Um, She becomes a life-drawing model, so that's someone who takes her gear off and poses in front of artists that are drawing her. So that's the sort of the premise of the story. And uh, when she's modeling, she starts imagining things about the artists that are drawing her and little by little um, her imagination takes a darker turn and yeah some murders murders and stuff might happen but I won't tell you any more than that (laughs) it sounds like uh, it sounds like quite a uh, kind of genre bending uh, film I imagine there would have been a reasonable amount of interest, but as you say, you know, things can take a long time to kind of happen in uh, in the film industry in terms of production. Uh, how did you manage to raise money and actually get the project up and running? Because it doesn't really matter what level you're operating at, some th- expenses you can't escape. Sure. Uh, so in my case... Uh when I realized I was not going to be able to bring in a big producer that might be able to tap into big governmental funding, um, that does still exist here in Australia, (laughs) which is a great thing for those that can access it. Um, So in my case, it was all private money. It came from crowdfunding and, uh, yeah, just private investors. um, And that was was mostly it. And then just in-kind services from people that were working with me. Mm. And how did you find the process of uh, of crowdfunding? It's a lot of work. It's not something you do unless you have to, although some people do use it as a marketing tool as well when they've already got the money to make the film, essentially. And, you know, that's, that's one way. Um, it certainly can help you grow the numbers and the fan base if you are in that luxurious position that, you don't need the money, but you're just doing the crowdfunding for uh, creating more interest. Um, but yeah, for me, it was it was a lot of work, but it certainly also meant that I could start the production of the film. So you know, you do the work so that you can do the fun. And what was the what would you say are kind of the cornerstones of a successful crowdfunding campaign? Um, for myself. Um, I, I did a little bit of everything because, you know, there's a lot of advice out there what you can do and uh, what what makes for a successful campaign. I just tried a bit of everything. So I did lots of media interviews. I did lots of private emailing to everyone I knew. Um, I did Facebook campaigns. I did, um, yeah, any, anything you can think of. I gave brochures to people. Um, in the local area, particularly where the film was going to be made. Uh, So I tried to create local interest. There was a local fair here. I had a booth there and and talked to people about the funding campaign. And yeah, it was just trying to 
use any any possible threat that you can think of to <laughs> promote it. And um, yeah, I think the promoting of your campaign is is the biggest biggest hurdle there. But I think at the end of the day, it was the personal contacts of of um, you know private emailing people or even private Facebook messaging that was more useful than anything else. Mm, it's those, yeah, those personal touches that really kind of solidify relationships. And I think they're, you know, very important across kind of any medium, particularly when you're asking people for uh, for money for something um, that, you, that yeah. you want to create. Yeah, definitely. And there's so many, you know, crowdfunding campaigns out there that, you need to stand out and what's better than a personal connection. Mm. So but it takes time. Yeah. It's, it's not, you can't do it, um, you know, as a, as a site thing, you sort of kind of have to, uh, yeah, devote your life to it for that couple of months that you're running it. Totally. So once you got the funding to make the film, how, what was the process? How did you make it? How did you kind of, because in a way, when you're dealing in that kind of, uh, with those sort of budgetary restrictions, you really are pulling a rabbit out of the hat. So how did you manage mm. to kind of make that all happen and, and have a finished film at the end of the uh, the process? Sure. So a lot of it, again, is about being flexible. You've got to not think that you're going to have a straight six weeks of shooting um, unless you've got the really big bucks that's not going to be possible so for me for example I shot the film over eight months it was some weekends some weekdays um overall 41 shooting days so it's it's a full um that that's how long you would expect to take um shooting a feature film but it wasn't it wasn't consecutive days um and and you know because I got most of my um locations for free for example that means that you've got to go when it's suitable for them you can't just say right i'm arriving on this day and i expect to have the location for me for 14 hours without anyone interrupting me that's never going to happen so there are cases where i would have a location for 15 minutes for example and i had to do a few shots in that 15 minutes i had to get my crew and cast in and be out in the next 15 minutes (laughs) So the, the starting shot of my film, for example, is from one of those uh, scenarios where all I had was, was that 15 minutes. Of course, most of the time I would have had a few hours, but even those few hours sometimes were in very unfortunate circumstances, such as a lot of outside noises, and, and I wasn't in a position to go, look, we have to have this place quiet, you can't have anything else happen, because I was giving, I was being given favours, such as using a location for free. And you just have to work with it. You you got to be able to work under unfortunate circumstances and make the best out of those circumstances because you get to use the location for free. Um, so yeah, it's just being flexible, being respectful, so that you get asked back mm. <laughs> if you need to do any pickups. Um, yeah, it's it's very far from ideal, and obviously, I would rather have had much more money to be able to have more freedom and more time and more you know l- less dis- restrictions basically and that's what money buys you um and if you don't have that then you just got to be flexible creative um, and work with what you've got and that's mm. pretty much what i ended up doing you have to put your kind of perfectionism to one side to kind of get the job done sure hmm how did you kind of overcome those challenges, I guess, on a kind of uh, physical level, but also on a kind of mental level, there's probably lots of things at play, lots of, you know, I'm sure you're, you're battling up against your own kind of ideas of how things should go versus what the reality is when it comes down to it. How do you kind of, how would you navigate those days where you felt like things just weren't going right? It, it can be difficult, yeah. Yeah, and you've got to stay really strong and you just got to keep your eye on the prize and remember that, you know, you're going to have a feature film out of this and, and if this particular shot or this particular day is not perfect, um, you can cut it out. <laughs> and I guess that's, 
that's you know the the benefit of of again being the sole creator or the the, the person um, making the creative decisions is that if something that you shot on the day is not working, you can cut it out or you can go and reshoot it if you're still welcome in the location. Uh, we didn't have to do a lot of reshoots. We actually managed to do everything we needed on those days. And and yeah, I just I've had to cut some shots that I liked because they just weren't good enough, and that's unfortunate. But then. I do believe that probably also happens in higher budget films. Uh, I don't think there will be ever a director that's happy with every single shot that they've taken. Um, well, if there is one, I'd like to meet them. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's always going to be a compromise with yourself and with everyone involved. And um, I don't know, I-, I can't really give you any better answer than that. It's, you know, making the best out of what's possible with whatever budget you're working with and just, you know, being creative in the moment. And, and also I think that the lower budget did give us some freedom as well in terms of getting some things that potentially people with bigger budget wouldn't have been able to see because we had to look out for alternatives. We had to think on our feet all the time. And I think sometimes you can become a little bit blinded by by having things come to you too easily so you know maybe this is just me rambling and trying to look the positive side in all of it (laughs) but you know I feel like we've created something that's quite unique in its look um and I'm I'm very very grateful that that we have been able to do that with such restrictions that we were under Mm. and where do you take it from here now that you know you finished it a few months ago is it going to have a, a festival life? Uh, how how do you intend to kind of promote it from this point forward? Sure. So we've started on um, two Australian festivals. One of them has gone, so that was the long film. And we've got the Made in Melbourne Film Festival coming in December. Amazing. So people can come and... Uh, Made in Melbourne Film Festival. So that will be at the um, Como Palace in, in South Yarra on... The 8th of December, I believe, 9 o'clock. So if you're in Melbourne, you can come and see it on the big screen in the fantastic cinema there in South Yarra. They are amazing um, cinemas. And after that, yeah, after that, hopefully um, uh, various international festivals. We are talking to um, Fine Arts Film Festival, for example, which is in Los Angeles. Um, and waiting to hear back from a few big festivals, fingers crossed. Um, and uh, yeah, we just want to get it out there as much as possible. So, if a festival organizer is listening, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> where could they? Uh, where would they be able to get in touch? Uh, well, that would be easy through our Facebook or um, innuendomovie.com or Facebook is just uh, facebook.com um, innuendomovie. You can find us there um, or even through my profile. My name is Sarah Lambert. That's S-A-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-E-R-G. Um, I'm very approachable. You can send me an email or a Facebook message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can if I'm not <laughs> flying from Finland to Australia. <laughs> Or having fallen asleep from jet lag. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, before Finland, I, I also attended the American film market in Santa Monica and made some great contacts for a film there. So, yeah, hopefully it will be seen in various different places soon. It's fantastic. I wish you all the best with uh, with the life of innuendo. What, what do you think about the current climate of uh, kind of funding initiatives that have been released sort of in the last 12 months that are kind of specific for women? Are these the sort of steps that you are excited by that are being taken in Australia? Um, to be honest, if I'm allowed to be very honest here, they, they do feel a little bit inadequate. Um, I feel that what we really should be striving towards is the same model as Sweden and Canada are doing, for example, which is just equalizing the funding completely. So that's 50-50 women, men, which is, you know, how the world works. <laughs> so I don't see why why films shouldn't work that way. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like these programs, of course, they're good things, but they do feel like they're a little bit of a 
artificial solutions to what really is the bigger problem um, and it's not going to be solved by one one program here or there it really needs to be more fundamental change towards more equal funding Mm. well hopefully 2017 will bring uh even more uh kind of equality for all of that i think uh I, th- I think the progress is, uh, is is being made. It's always slow and steady in Australia and um, other parts of the world as well. But hopefully, uh, hopefully we're all heading in the right direction. Um, yeah. I really uh, would love to thank you again, uh, Sarah, for doing this podcast interview with me. Um, every uh, every interview ends with the same question, and that question is: What makes you silly? Ooh. What doesn't make me silly? <laughs> it's a good question, by the way. I'd like to ask the same. Has anyone asked you that back? What makes you silly? Uh, yes, you can hear it in episode 50 where I was interviewed. Uh, um, my my answer... Got in there first. Sorry? <laughs> someone got in there first. Yeah, well, uh, I, my answer was uh, that, that I love professional wrestling and that makes me silly in... Uh, in in many senses of the word um and uh i guess a good martini also makes me silly Mm, very nice very nice um gosh did you see how i just it was a great stalling tactic answering that question (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, all the fantastic people that i work with um just make me silly and boring and you know i'm i'm pretty boring really there's nothing silly about me like i'm i'm just i'm just a normal person that just wants to make films and yeah uh, (laughs) yeah and i and i seem to be making some pretty silly films so maybe that's what makes me silly you know i'm not very good at talking the talk but i try and walk the walk so maybe that's what makes me silly Especially if you do uh, the John Cleese walk from Monty Python. That's a particularly silly yes. walk. That's very silly. It is. I'll th- try that. Thank you so much, Sarah. No, thank you.